0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. A few months ago, one of our listeners referred me to the story of a Norwegian expat named Jan Balsrud, who volunteered, along with nine others, for a very dangerous mission in German-occupied Norway in World War II, and suggested that I take a look at it and possibly do an episode on it. And it's a genuine tale of human endurance and courage during wartime. There are thousands of stories of men and women, all heroes, some few whose names became famous, even legendary, but most names remaining unknown to the general public, and this story is no exception. There have been a few good books on his incredible mission, and we'll credit them in our show notes. There is very little killing in this story, there are no daring rage which succeeded, yet this story is extremely powerful in its simple honesty a Norwegian expat becomes the lone survivor of a high-risk mission to organize a resistance effort in Nazi-occupied Norway in order to free his fellow countrymen from the yoke of German occupation. How many men and women, unsung heroes all, risked their lives for their country in similar ways or met their fates alone in the loneliest corners of the world, we may never know. But this story should stand as a reminder and an example of their courage. This man made it back and by doing so gave us this story and a name. His name was Jan Balsrud. Unlike many of the unsung heroes of World War II, his story survives and hopefully will serve as a powerful reminder that freedom does not come cheaply, and that when freedom is won, it is due to the courage and fortitude and efforts and risks of people whose names we've never heard of. This is a story that involves four British-trained Norwegian commandos, a Norwegian fishing boat crew, who risked their lives to help them with their mission a group of villagers in Norway's far northern climes, and some brave laps, without whose courage this story, like so many others from World War II, would never have seen the light of day. And now part one of our story. It was March of 1943 on the Arctic coast of northern Norway. As far as the eye can see, the land is covered over with ice and snow. The land is swept by icy winds, and it's brutal cold. It is March 29th, and there on the coast a small fishing boat is making landfall. It is daytime. The spot had been picked out as a safe one by the crew of the boat, eight of which were coming ashore with four soldiers who had been trained in guerrilla warfare. They were all Norwegians who had been able to escape Norway when the Germans invaded in 1940. they had made it to Scotland, and there, in Shetland, trained in special warfare, learning tactics they could bring back to their people to help them with their resistance effort. There were two main objectives to this mission one to establish a rapport with local villagers who wanted to become saboteurs and two in the coming autumn to destroy a german military airfield called Borgiafos in the hold of their fishing boat they'd brought with them 8 tons of explosives weapons food and equipment and 3 radio transmitters it was an extremely risky venture they were strangers in a very cold land the germans were well entrenched among these shores and they knew that one trader among these villagers whom they were to be working with could blow the entire mission sky-high at any time. The Allies, in this case the English, had planned for, and had high hopes for, this mission, but knew that the odds were stacked against it. And so it was eight of the crew of the fishing boat Bratholme and four of the passengers who went ashore. The leader of the four passengers was a forty-something man who had spent most of his adult years away from his home country of Norway, running a fur farm in a remote area of Argentina not so remote that he didn't have a radio, and when the announcer delivered the news that Norway had been attacked and occupied by Germany, he found his way to England and joined the military, becoming a commando, then getting transferred to the Linge Company, which was the name of the military unit which was training agents and saboteurs for an eventual landing in Norway. The other three passengers were younger. The radio operator's name was Salverson, who had volunteered to become an agent. The remaining two were named Per BLINDHEIM AND JAN BALSRUD Pere BLINDHEIM had fought the Germans as they invaded Norway. He had escaped to England, and he had volunteered for this mission. Where Per had blonde hair and blue eyes and was tall, Jan had dark hair and gray-blue eyes, and was of a smaller build. Selverson had joined the Merchant Marine at a young age and saw this mission as a way to help his country and escape the boredom of serving in the Merchant Marine. Not that World War II was boring for mariners, thanks to German U-boats. Maybe he just wanted to see his enemy face to face. Jan balsrud had been apprenticed to his father, who was an instrument maker in Oslo, and had just started his career when the invasion came. Jan had fought, and had escaped to Sweden when there was no more opportunity to fight. Jan and Per had known each other, were friends, and were both recruited by an English officer for this mission, which they accepted with hopes that they could help their country. These four men had been put through some extremely tough training in the highlands of Scotland, training which involved 30 to 40 miles forced marches across mountains wearing full packs, learning parachute jumping, becoming experts with automatic pistols and rifles, and learning how to attack and disable airfields. None of them ever showed fear of worry regarding the mission they were chosen for. They were confident, tough, and in peak physical condition. Their leader, Escaland, had been given very little information regarding what he could find in this part of northern Norway. He had been given a few names of people who could be trusted, but beyond that there was no support and no intel. They were carrying three top-secret radio transmitters, and their instructions were to guard these, and their ciphers, maps, and notes containing trusted contacts carried the same responsibility. They had originally planned to land on an island called Senja, but fate placed a German patrol boat in their path, "'and they had to alter their course northward, "'reaching an island called Wabinusoy, "'and soon they were creeping quietly into Toftyford, "'where they anchored. "'The engine was turned off, and there was dead silence. "'Not even birds could be heard or seen. "'They were in a deep fjord. "'They couldn't be spotted from the sea or land, "'and any plane passing overhead would likely miss them, "'due to the narrowness of the walls that surrounded them above. "'There was one small cottage there at the head of the bay.' There was smoke coming from the chimney, and it was a fisherman's cottage. On the beach they could see the racks for drying fish. Escalind and the captain of the fishing boat changed into civilian clothes and rowed ashore to see if the person or persons at the cottage were friend or foe. The two soon returned with the news that the cottage was occupied by a middle-aged woman with two children, a boy of sixteen and a girl who was younger. Her husband was away cod-fishing in the Lofoten Islands, "'and wasn't due back for several weeks. "'There was no telephone in the house. "'The men had told her that the fishing boat had stopped for engine repairs, "'and that was believable enough. "'There was no reason for her to worry. "'The landing party and crew enjoyed dinner alternatively, "'leaving a watch on deck. "'The fishing boat, due to its sensitive cargo, "'was rigged with explosives, "'and the men knew that if they were boarded by Germans, "'they were to blow the ship up, "'leaving no trace to be found of any of its cargo.' The fishing boat was equipped with a motorized dinghy, and as soon as it became dark, Escalon took two crewmen with him, one of these being an engineer, and when they ran into other boats, they were to ask where they could find engine parts, and they soon did run into a small fishing boat, the occupants of which recommended a dealer in Tromso. They continued on, finding the dealer, waking him at night, and asking him if he could take one of the two of their men into town in his boat, for they were still out on the islands. Escaland offered to pay the man a substantial amount of money for his help, maybe too much, because the man's suspicions were now aroused. The man acted frightened now, and at one point Escaland didn't help things when he decided to come clean and tell the man that they had come from England. The man asked, Why did you come to me? And Escaland responded by saying that this man had been recommended to them as a patriot. Then the man answered by saying that he had only recently taken over the shop. The previous owner had died. Now all Eskilin could do was to implore the man to keep quiet about all they had told him. They returned to their dinghy, now nervous and uneasy. They had no reason to distrust the man, but they couldn't be sure that he wouldn't talk to someone else. It was just sheer bad luck that the man whose shop location had been given to them as a source to go to was dead, and their first effort to find answers had been thwarted. They set off toward Tofty Ford, but they were soon overtaken by the fishing boat they had encountered earlier, which offered to give them a tow to Tofty which they accepted gladly. Outside the harbor, the fishing boat parted ways, actually heading back toward the place they had left to pick up some rope they had forgotten. When they reached the jetty there, the dealer, to whom Eskelund had spoke, was still awake, and the men all discussed the recent events. Soon the dealer shared the story that the three men had given him. None of them were sure what was going on, but they knew the penalty for hiding information from the Germans would mean death or imprisonment. The shopkeeper couldn't sleep that night. His head was filled with fear and confusion, and in the morning he went to his phone and called a man he knew who worked in the Department of Justice. This Department of Justice had been co-opted by the Germans and operated now out of the mindset that what was good for the Germans was good for Norway. If you didn't agree, you were shot or put in prison. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to Jan Balzrud's Mission Impossible. Part One. The next morning found all the men on the fishing boat nervously waiting for the arrival of the fishermen they had met the night before. The two fishermen had agreed to help them get their cargo ashore unnoticed and help them find a secret place to store it. The two locals did not know what kind of cargo the fishing boat was carrying, only that it contained food and equipment for the home forces to use when the advantage seemed to be going their way. The locals said they were fine with that, "'that they would meet them and pilot them to a safe place "'where they could unload their cargo. "'Those conversations had taken place last night. "'The Norwegians on the fishing boat expected "'that if the locals had contacted the German authorities, "'they would have been raided at dawn, or at least by noon. "'All that morning they did hear airplanes in the distance, "'as well as the sound of machine-gun fire. "'When noon came, they felt confident "'that their new friends had not turned on them. "'Then someone yelled, "'The Germans! The Germans are coming!' And the men on the deck watched in horror as a German warship appeared about 200 yards away and was quickly boring down on them. Now the Norwegians knew what the planes had been doing. They were stopping up any possible exits from the sounds. The Bratholm was trapped. Eskelin shouted, "'Abandon ship!' once, then twice. The men had been trained and knew what to do. One man ran up the flag to the mizzenhead the crew leaped down into one of the boats and rowed for shore. The German ship stopped and lowered two boats into which German troopers poured and those boats made for the shore a little north of the spot toward which the fishing boat crew was rowing. As per their instructions, Jan Balsrud and Salverson poured gasoline onto the cipher books and set them on fire and then readied the second dinghy holding it ready in the lee of the fishing boat out of the sight of the Germans. Eskeland and Per Blindum tore off the hatch covers and climbed down into the hold where they lit the five-minute fuse for the dynamite. The German warship was firing her machine gun and three-pound cannon at the fishing boat and the shots were going overhead. The Germans obviously meant to capture them alive. They weren't expecting much resistance. The warship was closing the distance now to the fishing boat. Jan heard Eskalen calling to him to hold them off. They needed a little more time. Jan grabbed a sten gun and fired it at the bridge of the German warship. The ship stopped briefly, and then moved forward again. Eskelin climbed up and headed for the dinghy, and Jan and the others followed. The Germans could not see the dinghy from where they were. Eskelin stared at his watch, counting down the last minutes before those explosives detonated. Each minute was like an hour. The men in the dinghy could hear the warship approaching the Bratholm. Peer Blindheim looked at Jan and said, "Well." We've had a good time for twenty-six years, Jan." Escalin's voice cut in. Two minutes. Jan could see the crew reaching the shore in the other dinghy. They had just reached the shore. Two had their hands up. Three were on the beach. The Germans were firing at them. One of them was lying still in the water now. One was trying to climb the rocks while machine gun slugs were chipping away at all the stone around him. Eskelin said, Three minutes. Did that mean three minutes to go? Jan thought. No, because he had said two minutes just before. It meant two minutes to go. A hundred and twenty seconds before this fishing boat and their dinghy were blown to smithereens. And they still waited. Had Eskelen lost his mind? No. He knew they were dead ducks if they tried to row out in front of those German machine guns. Their only chance was to be on the water when the boat blew and hope the warship was caught in the blast as well. Jan saw the German landing party on the far shore running south on the beach below the cliffs toward the crew of the fishing boat which had made it to the beach. Eskelin finally shouted, Cast off! and they began to row with all their might. It was 200 yards to shore. In seconds they would be in sight of the German ship. The blast had not yet come. They were easy targets for the German machine guns now. The Germans opened up on them and the digging was rendered full of holes within seconds but the men in the dinghy somehow were not hit by the first volley of fire. They all stared at the fishing boat in curious awe, wondering when it would explode. Fifteen seconds remained on the fuse. The warship and the Bradholm touched, and at the moment they did, the explosion came, but it was minor, only the primer had exploded. The hatch covers were blown off and the front of the wheelhouse caved in, but the German ship was undamaged. For a few seconds, the machine guns stopped, and the warship backed away from the fishing boat, which was now aflame. The men in the dinghy took advantage of the confusion and rowed like madmen, but the Germans weren't going to let them escape. The warship swung around and brought its cannon to bear. The cannon fired at the dinghy, and the steel from the cannon sailed just over their heads. Almost simultaneously, the Bradholm exploded. The fire had now reached the explosives. The Bradholm was literally vaporized in a huge explosion that followed. Eskalind was blown overboard by the shockwave and Jan reached out and pulled him up onto the gunwale. Then the three pounder scored a direct hit on the dinghy and the men were all knocked into the water, which was choked with ice, swimming with about 70 yards to go. Then all the German guns began firing at their heads in the water. Miraculously, they all reached the shore. Jan stumbled through the shallows with Pear pair beside him. The pair fell forward, killed instantly by a German bullet to the head. From where he stood Jan could see Eskeland had fallen on the beach. Salverson had had sunk down or at the least too exhausted to go on. Behind him Jan could see four Germans on the hillside above him trying to cut off any chance of his escape. Now they began to take pot shots at him. At the same time he was also drawing fire from the German ship. Jan's only option was to approach the four Germans who were cutting him off. He drew his sidearm as the Germans came within range. A German officer in a Gestapo uniform was the closest. Jan squeezed the trigger and nothing happened. The action had frozen. He tried two more times with no result. He ejected two cartridges and finally it fired. The German officer fell dead in the snow. Jan fired at a second German and he went down badly wounded. The remaining two had turned and were running away and Jan headed for the gully that would lead him to freedom. The snow was soft and deep and very hard to move in. But he moved on, exiting the gully to where the ground became a smooth, wide slope of snow. But now he was within range of the ship's guns again, and his dark clothing made an easy target against the white snow. The German three-pounder was hitting all around him. He was struggling mightily against the ice trying to move upward to the top of the slope, and it was two steps forward, one, sometimes two steps backwards, while his shells and bullets pounded all around him. Finally he made it to the top. "'There were rocks there and shelter. "'He looked down into the harbor. "'Smoke hung in clouds above the harbor, "'and the Bretholm was gone. "'He felt a pain in his right foot "'and saw that his boot was gone. "'His boot and half his big toe had been shot away. "'It wasn't bleeding much because the blood had frozen. "'He turned his back on the site below him "'and tried to put more distance between himself and the Germans. "'Jan could hardly believe that he was still alive, what life he enjoyed might only be a fleeting moment. "'He was stranded on a small island "'with at least fifty Germans looking for him. "'The snow was his worst enemy. "'It made him easy to track. "'He was soaked to the skin from his swim, "'and his extremities were freezing. "'All his money and papers had blown up on the boat, "'and he had one barefoot missing part of a toe, "'which presented a huge threat of gangrene. "'He took stock of where he was. "'He was on the southern slope of this island.' "'and there were patches with no snow, "'as well as stones over which he could hop, "'albeit painfully, "'until he started to bleed again anyway. "'Then he would be leaving a blood trail. "'He had no food or water. "'He needed to find shelter, "'but on this tiny island "'every home would be searched by Germans. "'He spotted two small hay sheds "'and thought how nice it would be "'to crawl into that hay and sleep. "'But he also knew that they would be "'the first place a search party would look. "'He was on the beach now, "'looking across the sound at another small island. "'He was out of sight of his pursuers. "'And that's when the idea hit him. "'He would swim across to that island. "'The German soldiers hunting him would never consider "'that their prey would swim these icy waters in order to escape. "'They were dry and warmly clothed. "'It just wouldn't register in their minds that someone would swim "'or could swim away from this island. "'He ran to the edge of the water, walked in, and swam.' Upon reaching the island, he found a spot which provided cover, and immediately set himself to doing exercises, moving all his parts, knowing that to rest would be to allow his body to freeze. Across the sound and along the beach from which he had swum, he now saw a German search party looking for him, shining their flashlights into crevices in the rocks and poking haphazardly into bushes. When darkness came, he saw them using torches and occasionally heard gunshots as they fired at shadows, or, he hoped, each other, in the darkness. Jan could only watch for a minute or two. He knew that if he didn't find a warm house, he would be dead before morning, but apparently there was no one living on this tiny island. He looked across at Vargasund Island, about two hundred yards across another body of ice-laden water. He considered his choices. Try it, and drown from exhaustion, or die freezing here. For the third time in his many hours, he dove into the water, and, pushing the ice chunks away with his head and hands, slowly started churning toward that island. Vergesund, he knew, had cottages on it. He remembered little of what happened on that swim, except that he fell into a delirium, and somehow, some way, his body washed up on a beach at Vergesund. He lay face down, slipping in and out of consciousness. He soon heard footsteps and people talking in high voices. He raised his head, and standing just a few feet away from him were two little girls, standing hand in hand, their eyes open wide in fright. He mustered up all his strength and said, in a calm voice, "'You needn't be afraid. I've had an accident. I do wish you could help me.' They stared quietly, but the panic was at least gone from their faces. He showed them how wet he was. He asked them where he could get warm. He asked their names. They answered, "Dona." and Olag. They walked with him to their house, where their mothers, Fru Peterson and Fru Edripsen, were standing, looking at him with wide eyes. He spoke to them in Norwegian, and they immediately helped him toward the fire, brought him towels, and put a kettle on. They brought him a dry change of clothes. He was exhausted, and badly needed sleep, but he wanted to tell them first what had happened, and that the Germans were hunting him. He also told them that if the Germans came, they must tell the Germans that he forced his way into the house with his pistol and that they had no choice but to accept him Fru Edripson who was from Touchiferd had seen the shooting from her position from the top of the island and then rowed across the sound to take refuge here with her neighbors Fru Peterson had a grown son who was due any minute he was out fishing her husband was out fishing for the entire season the two women gave him hot soup rubbed his arms and legs trying to restore circulation "'bandaged him, and found a boot to replace the one he had lost. "'He fell asleep feeling guilty that should anything happen to these fine people on his account, "'he would never be able to forgive himself if he did survive. "'He knew he had to leave for their sake as soon as possible. "'The eldest son returned home before Jan fell asleep "'and set his mind to figuring out the safest way to get Jan to safety. "'The young man knew that the islands here were not safe. "'Everyone knew everyone else's business.' Jan, he said, had to get to the mainland if he was to have a chance. The problem was that the boy could not row Jan to the mainland. He would take him to another island on which he knew a man they could trust. Early in the morning Jan said his goodbyes and thank yous, climbed into the rowboat, and they both pushed off and into the sound, headed for another island called Ringvisoy. The boy gave him directions to the man's house, whose name was Jensen. Jan finally made it and knocked at the door, and Pru Jensen answered, "'He asked if Mr. Jensen was there. "'No,' she said. "'He had left for Tromo early in the morning "'and wouldn't be back for two or three days. "'Who sent you here?' she asked. "'He explained his situation and then told her. "'I don't want to tell you, and you don't need to know. "'It's safer for you that way. "'She understood the logic and invited him in. "'She was a midwife, and there were women in labor in her house. "'She made him a warm breakfast and gave him some names and locations "'of people he could trust.' He decided to follow the shoreline southward along the north shore, where he was taken in by people who fed him and gave him a place to sleep. The weather had turned bad, however, and once again he found himself soaked to the skin. He had one name in his mind of a man who he needed to reach. The man's name was Einar Sorensen, who ran the telephone exchange at a place called Bjorniskar on the south side of the island. The south side of the island, which defended the entrance to Tromso, was heavy with Germans. To stay unseen, Jan had to traverse very rugged mountainous areas, which cost him days and left him exhausted. He finally landed on Einar's doorstep and was whisked inside and received like an old friend. Einar had heard through the island grapevine that the crewmen of the fishing boat, as well as Jan's commando friends, had all been killed by the Germans. One had been killed on the beach. The rest had been taken to German command. They were then forced to stand in line in public and shot to death in the street then dumped in a mass grave. Two had been tortured brutally. At midnight, Einar went to fetch his old father from the house next door, because he knew it would take two to row to the mainland, which, Einar said, they must do now, as the weather was right. While Einar was gone, his two sons asked Jan for a story. Although Jan was dead tired, he started telling them a story. Einar soon brought back his father, 72-year-old Bernard Sorensen, who was a capable and feisty senior. Jan was worried for him that he would be rowing ten miles across and ten miles back in the driving wind and snow, and old Bernard answered him with a smile. "'When I was a young man's son, I rowed to the Lofoten Fishing Grounds two hundred miles. We were tougher than this young generation. In my day, it was wooden ships and iron men. Now it's iron ships and wooden men.' As they pulled their boat out of the boat shed, he turned and said, "'Do you know there was a young fellow taken to the hospital sick the other day? "'And do you know why he was sick? "'He got his feet wet. "'I've had my feet wet for over 70 years. "'Let's get going. "'Crossing the Sound is nothing.' "'It was three in the morning "'when they reached the shore of the mainland. "'Jan had been given ski boots and skis "'that Einar had provided, "'and he was happy that now he was off the water "'and in a place where he could travel on land "'on skis.' His odds were looking better. Einar and Bernard wished him luck and shoved off. We'll return next week's Sunday night with Part 2 of Jan balsrood's Mission Impossible. If you're enjoying this World War II story of an unsung hero, please let us know with a review. Thank you. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.